0: Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson here, and, well, you know we love books. You know we love to learn. We love when you learn with us. And today we have a wonderful chance to learn together. The Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volume 1, The First 50 Years, is written by Mr. Lowell E. Bayer. He's an environmental historian and attorney, and he's got a lot to say on a subject that many people don't perhaps consider unless they see some animal commercial on the television, yet yet other living creatures play an Im- remarkably vital role in our world. Mr. Lowell Bayer, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. The pleasure is all ours. We love to learn, and we'd love to learn, sir, first and foremost, before we get to the literature, tell us about you. Tell us about what inspired you to endeavor to support animals and to speak about uh, our role in conserving the different species that exist.
1: Well, uh, Trent, I was born in Chicago, but I was raised on my family farm in Indiana, which is about 100 miles south and west of Chicago in Indiana, northern Indiana, Jasper County, for those that know the geography. that's I was raised out there, and my grandfather had several farms right there. We lived on one of them, but he also homesteaded himself in Montana. When I was oh, 6, seven, eight, for a period of years, he would take me with him in the summers out to his ranch in Montana. Our farm in Indiana was a grain farm, a dairy farm. We milked by hands but anywhere between 17 and 27 cows morning and night, and uh, that was my upbringing, being raised in, you know, on that rural environment, and then raised during my grandfather's uh, visits to Montana on that wonderful ranch where he maintained horses, basically. So at any rate, I was educated at Valparaiso University in northern Indiana as an undergraduate, I got my law degree down at Bloomington, Indiana, at the Indiana Law School, and I immediately went to Washington, D.C. thereafter to practice law. When I was 16, I had the privilege of being a page boy for a year in the U.S. House of Representatives for my congressman uh, from the 2nd District, who was Charles Halleck. And so that was my introduction to the national scene, if you will. Uh, Animals have always been a part of my my culture, raised with them, and uh, and have always respected uh, animals and uh, and so forth. Uh, the Boy Scouts got me into further into uh, insects and entomology when I did merit badge work, etc. and the like. And so it was an area of total fascination from being a kid. And then as I grew up and realized there was a whole world of, of law uh, revolving around animals and species of all sorts, I really became interested in that because I could relate to the subject matter, which were animals, plants, insects, and so forth. So that's a bit of my background. I've been practicing law for 60 years now out in Washington, D.C., and I'm a legal and environmental historian as well as a practicing attorney. And so that's just a little little bit of my background and why I'm intrigued by the laws that relate to our natural world around us, which has really been my focus.
0: That is absolutely brilliant, sir. Thank you so much for for giving us that insight. You know, Cicero uh, talked about the second nature that man sort of built within and without nature, if you will. And certainly we have a responsibility to steward the land as best we can. And, And the animals are, of course, one of the Principal parts of that stewardship. So we appreciate your hard work and dedication over the decades.
1: I hope to continue my dedication and mission, if you will, to the betterment of nature as I, you know, as we as we go through life.
0: Absolutely. I had the um, I had the privilege of speaking to Dr. Carl Safina, an ecologist, uh, not too long ago, and his book concerning a relationship he had with a very specific owl is. Uh, just another example of, I think, the camaraderie that we have with nature, whether we always wish to admit it or not. We often have a dualistic mindset as though we are adversarial against nature as opposed to just simply a part of it. But Well, Trent, uh,
1: so many people today, uh, that's a great reference. I hadn't really thought about it. You call it, what did you say, a dual what?
0: I said it was uh, dualistic.
1: Yeah, dualistic. That is a great word, Trent, because today our young folks seem to get trapped inside of the house. Right. And or when they go to school, they're trapped by extracurricular activities, athletics, that sort of thing. Today, America and much of the world uh, has been separated from nature for so long that it is foreign to them. Right. I know there was an experiment where they took kids out of New York City. Out to the countryside, in uh, I believe it was Connecticut, and the kids were afraid to get off the school bus because they had never been out in openness where there were fields and farms. There you go. And they were afraid to get off the school bus. They had to be coaxed out to begin to experience just what it was like in contact with nature. But we, we man, is just a product of nature. We're we're one of many species, and we are we as a species are no different than animals and plants and insects and so forth as just one of the the universe of species that are out there today because of this dualistic and i love that word trent thank you for giving it to me because i'm going to use that but we are so tied up with this dualistic life that we are we become disconnected from nature and from that that has grown a an indifference towards the survival of species Unfortunately.
0: Absolutely. And and my pleasure, sir. I mean, learning and, and speaking is communicating, it's about sharing what we know. I mean, Professor William Durant, who's one of my personal heroes, he, he said that the only thing that separates the human animal from the rest of the species is is education. So that's right. So we have that to thank. And sir, we could clearly spend hours just speaking about nature and philosophy and all these wonderful things, but I do need to ask you about your wonderful codex of the Endangered Species Act, and to get started off of there, let's talk about biodiversity, and let's talk about why biodiversity is important for the future of not only humanity, but for the entire planet.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful subject. Biodiversity, for the listeners, let me define it, is the natural world that we live in, all life, whether it's man, insects, plants, animals, fish, uh, aquariums, amphibian, crustacean, uh, and even microscopic uh, species. And that's what the universe and biodiversity is all about. There was a law passed in 1973 called the Endangered Species Act, and it applied to saving and preserving all the species that were part of the biodiversity community, because in some way they contributed to the sustenance and support of man our clothing our food our shelter our very life is supported by the elements of biodiversity whether it's to build your house or grains in the field to to feed you and your dogs and cats or if you're in a rural setting your you know your your farm animals and um Uh, 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 um, It it is the world that sustains mankind's very existence. And when you start eliminating from that through extinction various species, plants, animals, insects, and so forth, you diminish and and, and make smaller the world of biodiversity. It's sort of like a balloon that gets blown up to its maximum. A green balloon. Just picture that. And now you begin to slowly let the air out, which represents extinction of the species, of the the many species. And all of a sudden that balloon gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And one day it's going to collapse. Man is one of the many species within that that circle of life. And so the Endangered Species Act was designed to protect the, the world of biodiversity now that has been exacerb- uh, uh, dur- dramatically exacerbated by climate change because and a lot of people don't relate that with biodiversity but what is climate change in its worst elements it's rapidly moving forest fires it's major uh, floods it's drought it's hurricanes destroy housing And it's interesting when I see the wildfires, especially in California, the fast moving wildfires, we always hear through our public media how many lives were lost and how many structures were destroyed by a fire. And I always ask, well, how many species were destroyed? Right. What species can outrun or outlive a fast moving wildfire or a major flood that just just erodes all the riverbanks that it overflows around it and destroys duck nests, uh, and the other uh, critters, muskrats, and the other critters that live, you know, within a riparian area on the banks of creeks and rivers that, that overflow. What the drought, in, especially in the West, has changed uh, the whole operation of farming and of cattle ranching in the West, and the drought is now limiting the food supplies. And from the biodiversity, and most people don't recognize this, of our drugs that sustain our life from nature, they come from nature. They come from plants, they come from animals, uh, and they come from amphibians like the horseshoe crab whose blood is drained off and then they're put back in the sea, but whose blood is used as a coagulant. And these drugs deal with life, aspirin. The very smallest element that we all relate to as humans is, is the aspirin. And that comes from a plant. And I could just go on and on and on. But the point is this. As the biodiversity universe gets smaller, our supply of drugs gets interfered with. And also our food. Our food security comes from biodiversity. The pollinators that we need to pollinate our food supplies are getting killed off. The birds, the bees, the insects. They're, they're dying. 25% of bird life in the last 20 years has decreased. In other words, 25% of the birds that used to be here 20, 25 years ago are gone. That represents 9 billion birds. Yep. 9 billion from Do- only 12 bird families.
0: Dr. Carl Safina said something, said the same thing. Absolutely. It's
1: yeah. outrageous. And, and, and the pollinators to go on like the monarch butterfly. We've lost 90% of our of our monarch butterflies, which is just a symbolic of the of the butterfly and the bug community that again are pollinators. Right. And the de- the bees, we've lost 45% of our not only cultivated bees that we carry around in white boxes to pollinate fields, but the wild the wild bees, we've lost about 45 46% of those in the last 10 years. Those are pollinators, and they affect our drug supply and our food supply. So I'm trying to speak directly to the people that are listening because they can relate to the loss of drugs, the loss of food. And it's going to get worse. That's what the Endangered Species Act is all about, is trying to stop that extinction crisis that's going on.
0: Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson, here with Lowell Byer- legal and environmental historian and attorney, speaking about the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volume 1, the first 50 years, speaking about why biodiversity is so important, about the 50-year anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. Sir, if I'm not incorrect, the Endangered Species Act is another legacy of Tricky Dick Nixon, along with the CPA and the EPA. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. He was the president in power that signed the act on December 28, 1973. But that act had been through its Congress for two years. However, Trent, there was an act, an Endangered Species Act, first enacted in 1966, another one in 69. And then the 1973 Act, when it was finally passed. They eliminated both of those and took their best pieces, if you will, of the le- that legislation and incorporated them into the seventy three act, which should just happen to be signed by Nixon, sure, because he was the sitting president when it was finally presented went through congress
0: sure, sure sixty six would have been Johnson still after goldwater yeah. so That's right, yeah. we know why the loss of plant and animal life is so important. I loved your balloon the image of of the balloon losing Mm -hmm. air. I think so often people perceive that there are actually two balloons. There's our human balloon, and then there's the balloon of everything else. But as you (laughs) so rightly noted, no, we're all in the same balloon. Yes, sir. So talk to me about the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volume 1, the first 50 years. Mm -hmm. Talk to Mm -hmm. me. We know now why biodiversity in all of its forms is so brilliantly important. We understand a bit about you. Now tell us what this book aims to educate the public on beyond the education that you've just given them during this conversation, sir.
1: Well, I wrote the book. Thank you, Trent. The book is entitled the codex of the endangered species act the first 50 years of volume 1 and volume 2 is the same title but it says the codex of the endangered species act the next 50 years volume 2 that comes out in in about 2 weeks that'll be released in about 2 weeks now why did i write these and what are what are they about they're students that are in colleges today and studying natural resource and wildlife conservation, natural resource management, wildlife conservation, weren't around when these laws were passed. They don't understand because they weren't here, what happened during that 50 years cycle over the last 50 years to try to implant the Endangered Species Act to our environment because it applies to everyone. It applies to foresters, loggers, miners, And Anybody, farmers, uh, ranchers, anyone that, that works the land gets affected by the Endangered Species Act. But so many people were not around when it was first passed, and they don't understand all the thousand tribulations over the last 50 years that made it what it is today, because what it is today is a little different than what Congress had intended 50 years ago. So this book was written to educate the public, our future biologists, and as to what the act was intended to be, what it is today, and why it is interpreted the way it is today. Trent, the act got a bad rap in 1978. The law was passed in '73, but in 1978, a case came before the Supreme Court—the first Endangered Species Act case. That was over a little minnow. Actually, a a member of the perch family, I think, or or bass family. But it's only two inches long, and it's called a snail darter. And the Tennessee Valley Authority in Tennessee was going to—we're in the process of building a dam, the Little Tennessee River. And that was a very fast-flowing, cold trout stream that once dammed up would form a reservoir, and it was the only known place where the snail darter lived. Okay, the Supreme Court said to the TVA, Tennessee Ballet Authority, stop. You've got a $110 million dam. I know it's 90% completed, but it violates the Endangered Species Act because it's going to, to kill off the species we know as a snail daughter. Right. So well, Everybody went up in arms running for cover, and their, their cover was, gee, we thought the Endangered Species Act only applied to megafauna, big species like uh, the buffalo, the wild horses, grizzly bear, the polar bear, whales, and elephants, and that sort of thing. We we thought it only applied to that. Well, it, it, the Supreme Court said, no, it applies to every living species. So the landowners uh, uh, and the working landowners, I should say, went up in arms, and it immediately began to characterize the Endangered Species Act as stopping commerce, shutting down commerce, that sort of thing. And unfortunately, it was being enforced, interpreted thereafter and enforced that way, shutting things down. And the world was up. I mean, the United States was up in arms over it. It took 30 years to straighten that out. But it got a bad rap back in 1978 that has stayed with. It. Unfortunately, it's one of those myths that just continue to haunt the a particular act of Congress. Uh, but it's been changed. Uh, people now, it took 20 or 30 years for the federal government finally to wake up and recognize, gee, we can't enforce that law the way the Supreme Court said it was to be enforced. And so they, through regulation and and so forth, not through legislation in the Congress, but through regulation, began to enforce the act to make it livable and now work with the landowner. So they turned it from a you know a vilified law into a law that is embraced by many today and the landowners that have experienced working with it now understand that it works to their benefit as well as, as the natural world, but it did get a bad rap, but the book to answer your question is written to explain all of that and explain really the way the act is today, because so many, uh, and I've spent a lot of time in the West doing my research and interviewing people. I must've done, I don't know, 75 or 80 interviews which all were taped and all were transcribed. Folks throughout the United States that had the experience with the Endangered Species Act from a variety of different angles, and so I was able to get the, you know, the relevance as of the act as seen through a lot of different perspectives in America. I knew, I was, I'd been practicing law 10 years when it was passed. I knew the men that passed it. I used to to go goose hunting over on the eastern shore of Maryland with John Dingell, who was the leader in Congress driving that act through, through. Right. And I know the trials and tribulations that he and many others that were part of the original act enactment of the act and the drafting of the act. I knew them all. Three of them are still alive today, thank God. And so I was really able to get from the beginning, very beginning, their thoughts about what this was intended to be, what it became, what the courts did to it, and what it is today. And so it's an explanation, really, of what the law is today. That's volume one. And then volume two is I put together 27 scientists who worked in the Endangered Species Act, and they all forecasted the things in coming up in the next 50 years as best they could that the act is going to apply to and how to deal with it. Because back 50 years ago, we didn't, know, we didn't anticipate climate change. We're a biodiversity crisis. we all had to be regulated in order to, re- to, to reflect uh, how to deal with those st- uh, stresses that were put upon it. Well, how do we deal with the unknowns of the future? And that's what volume two addresses, how to deal with those stresses that are coming. So that's volume one, volume two. Now, Trent, I'm going to take a moment to s- tell you about, about volume three. Very few people know about this. I was asked by my publisher to write a book for the, for the general public because volume one and volume two are more academically oriented right they're, they're really for the researchers the academicians and the practitioners that's the worst of it. people today that are enforcing that law many of them weren't around 30 40 50 years ago and they have no idea what the act was all about so you know it's for the current practitioners as well but volume three when they asked me to write it i really was reluctant then i began to think you know There's a lot I had to leave out of Volume 1 and 2. And Volume 3 is really for the general public because there's sex, there's drugs, there's murder, there's suicide, and there's prison time, all in Volume 3. That's coming out. It'll be released Earth Day next year, April 22nd, 2024. that has got all of that, those human interest elements in it are interlaced through the history of the Endangered Species Act. It's unbelievable when you really... You know, begin to peel back the layers beyond just the law and how it was enforced and look at some of the human interest elements around that. It blew my mind. It really blew my mind. I said to the publisher initially, oh, there's not enough to write about. My God, the more I, I, I got into it, the more there was, there was to tell than I hadn't been able to tell. And it makes a pretty interesting read. So mark your calendars, April 22nd. The name of that book, is called Earth's Emergency Room, Colin As the Planet Heats Up, So Does Politics. That We're still working on the subtitle. But the Earth's Emergency Room is the, the key, the, the main title of that book.
0: You heard it here first, folks. Check out the Codex of the Endangered Species Act Volumes 1 and 2 coming out in just a few weeks. And there's a third for those who are interested, the civilians who are interested in perhaps a bit of light reading, might even be considered a primer for Volumes 1 and 2 of the Codex. Exclusive information here on Let's Talk with Trent R. Nelson, speaking with Mr. Lowell Byer, environmental historian and attorney. Sir, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson that said we should have to wear the clothes of our youth as to submit to the same barbarous laws as our forebears. And I feel like that so often happens. Our past comes up with an idea, and future generations, they say, well, yeah, that seemed like it was a good idea, but maybe they thought about it this way, right? And you kind of project your own ideas and ideals onto Mm -hmm. past ideas or ideals. Again, we are all interconnected, Mr. Low Byer understands that his books have fascinating insight in them. Having read codexes, they are a bit heavy, but we could all use a bit of mind exercise. You don't go to the gym and lift five-pound weight. You get a little muscle going. Do something a little bit strenuous. Learn a little bit. Mr. Low Byer is here helping us learn. Thank you so much for coming and spending some time with us this morning, sir.
1: Well, Trent, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and your listeners. I just realized this is the first time I do one to two interviews every week and I have for several months on these books. And this is the first time I've mentioned in public that Volume 3 is coming. So you've got the lead.
0: We appreciate your kindness, sir. Hey, you set the stage, and make everyone feel comfortable to chat. You learn some pretty wonderful things if you're listening. Well, thank you. Pleasure is all ours, sir. Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson. Stay connected to the world that we live in, the natural world.